Hey, South Bend City Church, Mariah here. Today is week three of Advent, and before we get to today's teaching, I just wanted to let you know or remind you of several things going on in the life of our community this season. First of all, just wanted to remind you that our Christmas Eve gatherings in person at Studebaker 112 are happening Christmas Eve at 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. At 4 p.m., there is nursery available, but at the 11, there is not, so plan accordingly. So if you're in the area, we would love to see you Christmas Eve. If you don't live in the area, however, and you still consider Southland City Church to be your home, we wanted you to know that we're thinking of you as well. And so this year, we will be posting our Christmas Eve gathering in totality online. So make sure to keep an eye out for that on Christmas Eve as well. And then on Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we're not meeting in person and we'll also go dark online as well. Not only are they holidays, but it also is in line with our Fields Not Factories mantra, in which we believe that rest is an essential part of the rhythm of life, both for us personally and also for us as a community. And so those two days, we're going to lay low and go dark. After that, on January 8th, we're going to be hosting pop-up brunches all across the region. If you live in South Bend and would like to host, you can go to our website, scroll down to what's happening, and sign up that way uh, when you click on the link. However, if you don't live in South Bend and want to host an online table, we are also looking for that. And there's nothing crazy with that. All we're looking for is someone that can run a Zoom group and also just be a welcoming and steady voice that morning. And so if you're interested in that, hosting a Zoom or hosting a brunch in person, like I said, go to our website, scroll down to what's happening, click on host a pop-up brunch and let us know that you're interested. All right, today we've got Mallory Wyckoff, a friend from Florida that came up to give us a teaching today. Most of you probably know the song, Mary Did You Know? And so this weekend, we took some time to stop and think about what Mary probably knew and what we can know about ourselves through her experience. But before we get to that, Jason talked to Willow Weatherall, the executive director at DTSB, to talk more about what they're doing downtown and also how we can come alongside and support them through our Christmas offering this year. Let's join the rest of our community now. Uh, another thing that marks this season for us is ways that we want to be generous in the spirit of God's generosity to us. Uh, we've done that every year with the Christmas offering. I'll say more about that in just a second. I also want to make note that this year, another way that a lot of us are trying to extend more generosity is through the Tribune Project, which is how we uh, have bought the Tribune Printing Press building downtown, and we're preparing to renovate that for a future home, not just for our church, but for community partnerships for the common good. So if you're giving to the Tribune Project, we're thankful, and that could be another way to show up this season. But let's talk about Christmas offering. Uh, today I want to highlight one of the ways that Christmas offering will show up for needs right here in the city of South Bend, and I want to do that by welcoming Willow Weatherall to the stage. Please welcome Willow. Come on now. Welcome, Willow. Uh, so Willow is uh, both a member of South Bend City Church and uh, a leader in the heart of downtown South Bend. We're going to talk all about that in a moment, uh, but first, Willow, tell us like briefly, what's your South Bend City Church story? So I first encountered South Bend City Church when I was working for the Studebaker Redevelopment Initiative. So working for this, um, this building right here. And uh, we were in the first phase of redevelopment and we were trying to get tenants in the building. And South Bend City Church showed up and was looking for a permanent home. And um, you can imagine like when you're taking a million square feet of historic manufacturing space and transforming it into the Midwest's largest mixed-use technology campus, like a church wasn't at the top of our list in terms of ecosystem <laughs> it partners. Wasn't? It wasn't. It was. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I did, I was really, you know, curious about this church and why they wanted to be like 
part of this space and what we were building here. And so I started going to the, the, the gatherings that were being held at places like The Brick. So I would say like my, you know, maybe I was a little bit of like a South Bend City Church lurker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you were doing recon, we understand. I, I, was, yeah. I was, you know, checking out like, what is this church all about? And, you know, I could immediately see like, yes, this is a great fit to be in this ecosystem. This is, um, this is an organization that I want to advocate for to like come in and be in this space. So that was, you know, my first encounter with the church. And then um, fast forward, just becoming a member of South Bend City Church, one of the things that um, I love is like how the city lives out its, its values. And in terms of the mantras, the everyone in icon is one that really speaks to me in my current work. Um, I have one of the, um, the little cards in my wallet, and I also keep another one taped to the um, base of a lamp that I have in my office that sits between my computer monitor and my phone. And I look at that and try to be present to that before I pick up the phone to receive a call or make a call or send and receive emails, um, the work that I do is complicated. I encounter lots of people that have very strong feelings about what, what we're doing or what should be done to make improvements in the city. And I really try to keep that, um, the part of who we are as a church at the forefront of, of my work. Am I the only one feeling a little bit convicted about applying everyone an icon to your email habits? Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good move. I might need to grow in that area. Um, tell us a little bit about the organization that you lead, DTSB. Yeah, so Downtown South Bend's a nonprofit. Oftentimes people think like, oh, DTSB, like you're, you must be the city, you know. And while we interact a lot, you know, a lot with the city of South Bend and all of the different departments, like we are a separate organization that is dedicated to downtown development. And we do that in three um, sort of primary ways. So one is um, with business development. And just as an example, this last year, we welcomed 16 new businesses downtown. And we also work to help um, grow existing businesses. We have a grant program. We were able to allocate $125,000 this year, which catalyzed over $600,000 of total investment. Um, so we work really closely with our businesses. We also um, produce a lot of events, and some of our signature events, I'm sure you guys have, have you know, been part of. So first Fridays, you know, we just had our downtown tree lighting ceremony, and um, our largest event is um, Artbeat. So that's the region's largest arts festival. Any, any fans of first Fridays or Artbeat or any of those events downtown? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's all DTSB. So that's DTSB. We produce over 125 events every year. That's really helping draw people downtown and feel and just feel connected, like make memories downtown. I remember with the tree lighting ceremony last year. It was my first year as executive director, and there was this five-year-old standing next to me, like belting out jingle bells. <laughs> and you know, Santa arrived, and the tree was lit. And I was like, she will never forget that. Right. And that's what we're in the business of of doing is like helping people like create really beautiful memories that make them feel connected to downtown. And the last really important part of our work is sort of street-level solutions. So our ambassadors, uh, we have a team of ambassadors that pick up trash, plant flowers. Um, and one of our ambassadors in particular has a really special role in our downtown. Chris Anderson is our outreach ambassador. He works specifically with the chronically homeless and panhandling population. So he had over 1,000 interactions with people living on the streets last year to connect them with really vital services. So this is a little snapshot of, yeah, who we are and, and what we do. Before we talk uh, more about that position, because it gets into Christmas offering, and in case this hasn't been clear yet, 
part of what our Christmas offering is going to do is help resource the work of DTSB. So we'll say more about that in a minute. Uh, but when we have you on the stage, I can't resist um, just trying to draw out of you for a moment a word about Stop and City Church. You know, we're about to move to the Tribune Building, which takes us even further into the center of downtown uh, to a space that we want to steward, not just for our church, but for the community. And uh, one of the things I really love and admire about Willow is that she's such a good coach and guide and advocate for organizations, whether it's businesses or churches, trying to show up well in the city. She's a connector, she's a visionary. And you and I were talking, and one of the things that you reflected back to me that was a good reminder was like the many people who have shaped South Bend City Church in one season or another, who are also at work in the life of the city. Can you just kind of remind us of some of that, maybe even share some of those names? Yeah, I, I created a little list, and it's it's not exhaustive, and I apologize in advance if I forget some folks, but I did want to call out um, people that I really enjoy partnering with who are making a huge difference in the city. So some of them, um, uh, you know, I, I would say, like, I'm going to, if you don't know them already, like, go find them and talk to them about their work. They're really remarkable people. So Jake Titus is one of them. He just published a book, Life in South Bend. Um, um, Michael Yoder with Stockroom East, Rebecca Goh with the Office of Common Good at St. Mary's College, yes. Uh, Leslie Pinson with Local Spirit. Um, Letty Stanton Verzuka, I'm sorry, I think Letty, I butchered your last name, but with um, the Boys and Girls Club of South Bend. Pam Blair with Poetry Den, Bianca Tirado with the City of South Bend, uh, Cindy Scott Day, um, she's part of this really awesome group called the Buy Nothing, the Downtown Buy Nothing group. And um, she's always offering really helpful things to people in, in that group. I uh, really appreciate her. And then there are two people um, in particular that I um, want to just highlight, Chelsea Moyer and Amanda Harris, who are actually part of Downtown South Bend's team. So there's just a, a tiny, you know, I know it's a tiny fraction of like the work that people in this congregation are doing downtown, but these are some of my favorite collaborators. That's awesome. It's just good to name that and to yeah. lean into that, right? Uh, let's talk a little bit more then about the position that you guys are funding right now. Uh, so our, our Christmas offering is divided into community, city, and world. A third of it will go towards city objectives. One of those is the Refugee Resource Fund that'll provide material assistance for refugee families, but the other part of city will go to DTSB specifically to fund the, the position that you just mentioned. Tell us more about that. Yeah, our outreach ambassador position is, um, it's really critical and it's very unique um, in the city of South Bend. So Chris Anderson works, as I mentioned, he his, his whole role is to connect with people who are chronically homeless or part of a panhandling population that find themselves downtown and really connect them with vital resources. And sometimes people are like, well, we have all these resources, like what's, you know, what's so special about what Chris does when we have you know, Hope and Center for the Homeless, and we've got Winter Amnesty, we've got, you know, a, there's a lot of things downtown, but the folks that Chris works with, it's not enough that a resource exists because they would be using it already right. if, they were, if they were in the right place to connect with it. So these are the folks that are really kind of like the hardest people in some ways to assist. They often have severe untreated mental illness, severe addiction issues. And the level of like brokenness in terms of their connectedness to like family and organizations that can help is, I mean, it's, a, it's the most broken you can get when you find yourself in that position. And Chris, he, he goes out and he finds people and helps restore connection and really restore their humanity. Um, like there's no there's nowhere that Chris won't go like behind dumpsters in alleys like in the doorways like he proactively goes out and and find people finds people to connect them to housing to jobs to mental health services 
you know, you, you name it, Chris has like got an arsenal of resources. And one of the things um, I wanted to point out that's like really unique about what Chris does, um, I was talking with somebody the other day and they had, you know, an encounter with somebody who is homeless and mentally ill that was, you know, really uncomfortable for them. And they said like, well, why not call the police in those situations to come resolve it? And, you know, and I said like, you know, sometimes that's, that may, be, that may be a solution, but when, when you do that, oftentimes the police can resolve temporarily in the moment, like can de-escalate or you know, solve it temporarily, and then that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. there, that's the end of the interaction. And so with Chris, what I always like, ask people to do is like, call on him. He's specially trained to work with people who are in a really difficult place. And he's persistent, like he will do the follow-up, he will get to know them, and the interaction like in that moment won't, won't end. So you know, our, our whole goal is like getting people off the streets, getting them housed, getting them connected with um, employment opportunities, and really restoring their connectedness and their dignity in our community. Amazing. I think you can all see why we uh, want to get behind that and lend our resources to that work. Uh, Willa, we uh, love and admire you and the work that you're doing, and we're really honored that we get to be a part of it. Uh, thanks for your work and thanks for your leadership. We got to say thank you to Willa. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, speaking of introducing you to friends, I'm so excited to introduce you to this next friend, uh, personal friend and friend of South End City Church. Uh, she's teaching us today. Her name is Mallory Wyckoff. Uh, let me back up. We're, we've been working through the Apostles' Creed, this way of narrating the Christian story. And during this Advent season, we're sort of hanging out with a couple of lines in the Creed that speak of Jesus Christ, conceived of the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. And to just help us like press into the implications of that profound and radical idea, uh, Mallory came to mind pretty quickly. Uh, she came all the way from Florida in December to be with us in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Mallory is a teacher, preacher, writer, and spiritual director. She's also the key relationships officer for Preemptive Love, which is a peacemaking community all around the world, uh, working to end war and stop the spread of violence. She has a doctorate in missional and spiritual formation. Uh, she has a book uh, that's uh, available today, and I will unapologetically recommend that every one of you buy a copy. Uh, you can grab one after the gathering. It's called God Is, and I know that for myself and a lot of friends, it's been a really meaningful read. Uh, our team was out in Denver not too long ago for a gathering of like-minded church leaders, and one of the things that shaped that experience for us was Mallory's guidance and leadership, and so it's really fun to kind of bring her here so that we can all experience that as well. So she's going to teach us, and she's going to lead us in some time of meditation and reflection. I uh, can't wait for you to hear from her. Please welcome Mallory Wyckoff. Thank you, friend. Um, I did indeed come from Florida. I was telling the folks in the first service, I actually purchased a coat for this trip <laughs> to survive. Um, and so far, it's, I'm, I'm doing okay. But I'm honored to be here with you all, even in the cold weather. Thank you for the invitation from Jason and the team to, to join you. It really is an honor to, to get to be with you today. <clears throat> a few days ago... I found myself reclining on my dentist's table, mouthful of cold metal instruments, as he chatted casually with the hygienist about Christmas songs that are no longer in vogue. He rattled through a brief list and, much to my dismay, waxed nostalgic about the kinds of songs that once played on repeat without resistance, but now offend a modern ear. I could not respond except for grunts, 
which likely was for the best because my desired interjections would not have been entirely helpful. Toothbrush, merch in hand, I walked out of the office puffed up about my teeth, which had just been described as bulletproof, but annoyed by the conversation. I began to think about a well-known Christmas song that has gotten flack in recent years called Mary, Did You Know? Originally penned in the mid-80s, it has since been covered numerous times by top-tier artists including Kenny Rogers, Mary J. Blige, Carrie Underwood, and the queen of the industry herself, Dolly Parton. But some in recent years have pushed back, calling it as a display of mansplaining in musical form and obnoxious and presumptive questioning of Mary's perception and intuition. Of course she knew she carried God within her, they say, and that this boy would grow up to do incredible things. Quit assuming she didn't. Having lived my life as a woman for 35 years, it takes no convincing me that often we are presumed to not know information germane to our profession or education or the world in general. It happens in boardrooms and it happens in homes and it happens to me at amusement parks by smelly six-year-old boys offering a symposium on the workings of a roller coaster. So naturally, I sympathize with this reading of the song and the larger annoyance it conveys. But I wonder, can we really claim with any confidence what Mary knew? We are told so little about this woman in sacred scriptures, and much of what we think we know about her reflects the sensibilities of Renaissance artists more so than reality. She did not keep a journal, as far as I know, and she never wrote a tell-all book revealing the sordid secrets of first-century Palestinian life. Depending on the tradition in which you were formed, you could have engaged in near worship of Mary, or you could have heard next to nothing about her, save the utility of her reproductive organs. You may have been warned not to pray to her like those Catholics do, or you may have been told to hail her name a sufficient number of times to counteract that lie you told your teacher. Mary's role in humanity and shaping the world's trajectory cannot be overstated, yet in truth, we know little about Mary, Theotokos, mother of God. But as I read the texts we do have, as I observe her movements and watch the story unfold and imagine myself in her place, I begin to wonder what she may have known or sensed in the midst of the most famous pregnancy and childbirth of all time. So let us wonder together what Mary knew and what we may know through it. 
I think Mary knew that she was blessed and highly favored for no other reason than because God said she was. One day, in the midst of an otherwise ordinary existence, a divine messenger shows up at her door, making all sorts of wild claims about her uterus and what will happen to and through it. The angel pronounces that the child will be unlike any other the world has known, that he will carry on the tradition of David and his kingdom will see no end. Imagine this young peasant girl in a land occupied by a foreign power anxiously telling the angel to hold on one moment. She runs into the house, feverishly gathering an assortment of documents, stuffing them in her arms, pausing momentarily at the hall mirror to fix her face, and runs back out to the courtyard. Flushed and a bit breathless, she exclaims, here they are, here are my papers. This one shows where I came from and how you can trace my ancestors back for hundreds of years. You can read all about our exceptional pedigree and the great number of scientists and lawyers and scholars we've produced. And here, here, this one shows where I completed all of my studies. Look at those high marks, the highest in my class. I also brought letters of recommendation from some local leaders in the community detailing how diligent and capable I am, and I made sure to use all the buzzwords the internet suggested for a polished first century resume. I think you'll find everything you need here to show why I'm the most qualified for the job. The angel, head tilted slightly to the right and mouth open as if on the verge of speech, blinks slowly. He says nothing for a moment. Mary is worried, berating herself for not grabbing the blue ribbons from her equestrian competitions. But I already told you that you're favored, he says. Mary did none of this, as we know, but it's precisely what I would have done. Yes, yes, okay, I was spoken into existence by Creator, and she called me very good and said I bear her image, but here's a list of reasons why I am worthy of love and belonging. Or perhaps much more likely, here's a list of reasons why I am not. I'm thankful that Mary seems much less occupied than I am with image curation, seems to spend less time battling her inner critic and believing the limitations it prescribes. I think Mary knew that whether she felt worthy or capable or good enough, all of one's credentials or lack thereof count for nothing when a messenger from God is standing in front of you calling you blessed. May it be with me according to what you say, she says. I think Mary knew that her questions were holy, her doubts sacred. When the angel tells her what will unfold, how she's part of a divine plan stretching out long before her and enduring long after, she does not grab a pen and sign a contract affirming she understands the deal. She does not straighten up tall and pronounce that she believes everything she's hearing and always has. She doubts. She wonders aloud. She asks questions. 
she begins to probe the experience and bring it into conversation with what she's known before. She excavates reality and ponders the whole weird and wild situation in her heart. Neither Matthew nor Luke spend any time at all telling us about what Mary had believed about God, how frequently she recited Torah or prayed the Psalms. They don't tell us how pious or faithful she was, that she never once wavered in her faith, and how she understood the divine the same way her whole life. They tell us she asked questions, that she wrestled with what she heard, that she gave herself time to process what she was experiencing and discern what it all meant. Mary knew that from the first moment a mother holds her newborn in her arms, she is beginning a long goodbye, the long and bittersweet process of surrendering and letting go of what is that cannot forever be. So perhaps she also knew that a life of faith is itself a long goodbye a constant surrendering of what faith has looked like as a new understanding and incarnation emerges, and then another, and that doubts and questions are essential to this evolution. Whatever she did or did not believe, the story tells us that a particular theological position was not a prerequisite for a movement of God in her life and in the world. Perhaps it is not for us either. I think Mary knew that God trusts women and deems their bodies sacred. As a Jewish girl, she likely had heard scholars and teachers of the law detail how one would come and bring salvation to the people of Israel, how creation itself would be healed and made whole, but I wonder if she ever expected that the God who hung stars in the sky like ornaments and held back the waters of the Nile, excuse me, of the Red Sea, and the Israelites passed through unscathed and penned the commandments that would bind a community would take up residence in her very body. I wonder if the men scholars really imagined it either. That this God they spoke of and prayed to, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would become the God of Mary's womb. The people of Israel were well-versed in the holiness of God, the way one could not simply see God's face and live. Yet here, God's face was slowly taking form within Mary. I don't know how her community spoke about women, whether she heard sexualized jokes laughed off as locker room talk or the groans of fathers near birth stools upon discovering the child born to them was a girl. Maybe she knew which uncles to avoid if possible, which men at the temple were not safe for girls like her. I don't know if she was conditioned to believe that a woman belongs in certain places but not others, that aspirations beyond such prescribed constrictions are dangerous and worldly. I just know that at a young age, in the middle of a patriarchal society and a world where women's bodies are vulnerable to every imaginable assault and violation, God made God's self vulnerable to her body.
As the baby grew within her, as she nursed him at her breast and held him on her hip, I think Mary knew that God spoke a far better word about women than the jokes she heard and the harassments she endured and the limitations she resented. I think she knew that God had loved God's loved creation with God's own body from before the world even took shape, hovering over the formless stuff of creation like a mother hen incubating her young, and that God was loving creation through a female body now. I think Mary knew that God is a communicator that the same God who is not afraid to dwell in wombs is the same God who is not afraid to dwell in language, in speech, in poetry, in rhyme, in metaphor and simile, in the wisdom and knowing of human beings. Perhaps she had read the sacred texts about God showing up as three travelers to dine with Abraham and Sarah, or God's voice emanating from a bush on fire in the middle of the desert, or God speaking through a naked Isaiah as he prophesied about coming judgment. This may have been her first encounter with an angel, but I bet she wasn't shocked that the God who communicates in every possible way to God's people would use this angel to convey a divine message. But beyond the usual angels and prophets, I think Mary was open to truth wherever she found it. And in these texts, she encounters numerous means of truth-telling. A baby leaping in her cousin's womb at the sight of her, a midnight dream that shook Joseph awake, the testimony of low-income shepherds fresh off their night shift, gifts from astronomers who looked to the stars for meaning. Mary seems open to truth and beauty and insight wherever and however they may come, never once asking if it came through the proper channels and had been verified by a scholarly committee. I think she trusted her own ability to know and discern truth, having carried its embodiment in her own flesh. Maybe this is what she pondered in her heart. I think Mary knew that if this, all, if this all was a story God was telling, it was going to take a while. She seems to understand what a poet by the same name two millennia later would remind us that things take the time they take. She knew that God's plan to set all things right had started with the formation of a people, her people, which is about the slowest and least efficient method I know of. People are slow and stubborn, and we take a while to come around to things, and we often get in our own way. Yet rather than calling an audible and reversing course and choosing another route, in the incarnation, God seems to double down on God's preferred method. God forms a particular person, who will be the light of the world. But he will not bypass a single life stage and glide his way into prominence so we can get this show on the road. No. Mary knows that raising a child, even this anointed one, will be a collection of long days 
and restless nights, a tedious process of teaching him about life and how to tie his sandals. In the text we heard this morning from Isaiah, when the prophet prophesied that waters would break forth in the wilderness, I think Mary knew it would be her water breaking and that just like labor itself, there is no rushing anything. If she was anything like me, this seldom felt like good news. It felt like an annoying interruption to the kind of pacing she liked to keep that maximized productivity and minimized inefficiencies, both of which are impossible realities in parenting. But maybe when she began to berate herself for not being far enough along in the journey or feeling down about what she had yet to accomplish, she took a deep breath and remembered the long, slow work of God in and through and around her. Maybe she realized that it was okay to rest a while and allow her body to remember its innate rhythms, that if God wasn't pushing God's self to the nth degree, then maybe she didn't need to either. I think Mary knew what real joy is. From the very outset, her circumstances were never easy. She lived under Roman occupation, always under the thumb of empire. She was a young, unwed, pregnant woman claiming to be visited by angels. She delivered her baby far from home and could only find a feeding trough for animals to lay him in. She was forced to flee her home and become a refugee in another land because of a power-hungry dictator whose violence and cruelty knew no bounds. And eventually, she would watch her beloved son die the most humiliating of deaths, strung up on a cross, naked for all to see. She knew trials and challenges at every turn. But I think she also knew that the God her people spoke of from the moment she drew her first breath was the God who took form within her very body, was the God who would greet her as she drew her final breath, and that perhaps this meant that indeed all would be well. I think it was real, unsentimental, gritty joy that allowed her to look at the world as it was and claim what it would be through the one she carried. She could laugh at the powerful on their thrones knowing it was the lowly and humble ones who would be raised up. She could lament injustice with hope knowing that God promised to heal and set it all right. She could resist the powers that opposed her and the life within her, knowing they may will death, but even death is never the end. And the truth is, whether in song or in sermon, we can only speculate about what Mary knew, how much she understood of her circumstances and the God who favored her. The truth is, I don't know if Mary knew any of this, but I hope we do.
Friends, I'm going to invite us into a space to settle into and sense into what we've just heard. So if it feels safe and comfortable for you, I'll invite you to close your eyes and to get your body in a position that is comfortable and allows your mind and spirit to be alert. Gently bring awareness to your breath. You do not have to force it into any particular rhythm. Just notice it. Your breath hasn't been sustaining you all night long and into this morning. And perhaps this is the first moment of noticing it. A reminder of all the ways that God is at work sustaining life in and through you. gently bring your attention to anything that you just heard spoken that was compelling to you. You sense life and energy within you and just notice it. truth and beauty, notice how it feels in your body. Now I'll invite you to turn your attention gently to anything that brought a sense of internal resistance for you. As best as you're able, do not judge or critique or evaluate it. Simply notice the resistance. feels comfortable, I'm going to invite you to open your hands in a posture of receptivity. And as you do so, holding out this question open before God and before yourself, is there any invitation being extended to me here in what is compelling, in what I resist? Is there any invitation being extended to me here? 
and just notice whatever may surface. Remaining in this posture of openness and receptivity, I'll invite you to open your eyes, return your attention to our space here, and stand with me, if you will. And receive this benediction, these words of blessing. May you live with eyes and ears and heart wide open to truth wherever and however it comes, even and especially when the means and source are unexpected. May you rest knowing God has never held the fears about being right that we do. May you know that things take the time they take that you are neither early nor late, but precisely in a space ripe for spirit to move. May you know that you are blessed and favored and chosen by God right here in this moment, not some past version of yourself where things made more sense or some future aspirational version where you'll finally get things together, you as you are right now. May you know that God does not merely tolerate your questions and doubts and wonderings, does not put up with your uncertainty because God's certain you'll eventually come to a conclusion. No, God sits waiting in expectation to hear what you are thinking and wondering because like a mother delights in the moments of real and raw and honest conversation with her children, God only wants your real. May you know that like the body of Mary, God has called yours good. That God was willing to make God's self vulnerable to a human body and dignifies yours. May we build a world where everybody is deemed sacred and worthy of the divine. And may you know real, true joy deep in your bones Acknowledging that the God who holds all things together will bring it all, including you, to a place of healing. We will all be free. Grace and peace be with you.